Hey, it's Ed. Real quick before we get started, we have two new podcast supporters, and I wanted to give them a quick shout-out. Mark McCord and Semi-Rad, which is also known as Brendan Leonard, who's a former podcast guest. But again, I really, really appreciate all the support. I appreciate you listening, but the idea that people are supporting the podcast with their hard-earned dollars is really amazing. So thank you very much. Appreciate it. Hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Eric Peterson. Eric is a Montana-based photographer, filmmaker, and photojournalist whose work showcases the American West and the many ways we enjoy our wide-open spaces. His most recent film, A Few Steps Further, explores the commonalities between backcountry hunting and mountain endurance sports while highlighting the spectacular landscapes that make these activities possible. Historically, hunters and adventure sports enthusiasts have not always seen eye-to-eye, But through this film, Eric demonstrates that the two groups have much more in common than not, most notably a love for public lands, pushing one's physical limits, and hardcore adventure. Growing up in Minnesota, Eric was an avid hunter and outdoorsman, but he'd always had a lifelong love for Montana, so he moved west for good on the exact same day that he graduated from college. He worked for over 10 years as a newspaper photographer throughout Montana, honing his craft and learning to produce high-quality work under the pressure and deadlines of traditional print media. Eventually, Eric transitioned into freelance photography, taking some initial assignments that included trips to war-torn Afghanistan and the surrounding region. Now much of his work centers around the landscapes of the American West, and his photographs and films highlight many of the values that we celebrate time and again on this podcast, including conservation, public lands, adventure sports, and interesting people who love the West. Eric and I caught up on the day a few steps further was being released to the public, so I've embedded it in the episode notes. Be sure to check it out. I know you'll love it. In addition to that film, we talk about some of his other work, including a film he's currently making that explores the threat of a gold mine being opened near Yellowstone National Park and the promising bipartisan coalition that has emerged to fight that threat. We also talk about the lessons he learned from years in photojournalism and how he manages to balance his role as a husband and father of two boys while running his own creative business and pursuing adventure sports such as hunting and ultra running. We also discuss his creative mentors and heroes, his favorite books and films, and he gives me some good advice on how to take better landscape photos. Be sure to visit the episode notes for links to everything and enjoy this fun conversation with Eric Peterson. When you meet somebody for the first time, never met them, and they ask you, what do you do? How do you answer that? Yeah, I'm a a husband to a wonderful woman, a a father to two really cool little boys, and a photographer and filmmaker. I want to talk to you about a million different things, as you know, but I think maybe the 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 best way we can start this out is by talking about your new film a few a few steps further because i think that's a good intro to some of the other topics we want to talk about can you just it, it was just released publicly from what i understand and so could you just talk a little bit about that film and how it came together yeah in fact it was released today publicly which is exciting to get it out there um it is a story about the crossover between endurance sports and backcountry hunting and the need for uh, public lands and wild places to do both of those activities. So um, I followed uh, a guy from Livingston, Montana named Kevin Davis as he um, ran the Hard Rock 100, which is one of the arguably one of the hardest um, hundred mile trail races. Um, in July and then two months later we went and did a backcountry style relatively extreme uh, mountain goat hunt in Alaska and it just kind of uh, it shows the 
the crossover and the similarities in those two pursuits. Um, it The genesis was sort of like I used to have my hunting buddies and my running friends, and they were two very different species. And over the years, that, that crossover was happening more and more where uh, my hunting friends were, were you know, doing these endurance sports to get in shape for um, hunting in order to enjoy themselves more and get further back into the backcountry. And my running friends were hunting more because they liked the idea of finding their own source of protein and, and being active in that, um, you know, in, in securing that food source. So. Yeah, it's a it's really a perfect combo that you know I've thought about it a, a good bit, but and obviously other people have, but I've never seen it put together, even really in a in an article, much less such a, a great film. And um, so, t- tell me a little bit about your your interest in ultra running. How did how did you get into that? Um, you know, I didn't run until I moved to Montana. Honestly, I was a wrestler in high school. Uh, running was always a form of punishment. Uh, and so I, I had no interest in it, but then I moved to Montana and, uh, have, have been a lifelong hunter and love being outdoors and in the mountains and that sort of thing. And running, uh, just became another way that I could be in the mountains in the off season of hunting, to be honest. And I, you know, started out short like everybody does. And eventually, um, just found that spending longer periods of time, I guess. And, and setting goals and, and then dabbling in some of the trail races. And then, you know, you do a 10 K and you wonder if you can do a half marathon and then you wonder if a marathon is doable. And so that was sort of my progression, like, like most other runners. Yeah. I've always thought I, I did the same thing. I didn't, I didn't really run until I moved out here. And I always thought that, um, yeah, the, these races, I mean, I'm not trying to win obviously. And even if I was, I couldn't, but I, th- I think of it as paying somebody to put aid stations out in the woods for me. <laughs> and then I can just, you know, go out and cruise around for 15 or whatever, 30 hours if needed. Um, and it's really, it's really about the snacks. Oh yeah. It's all about the snacks, man. Um, did, uh, and so was it the same for hunting? Did you grow up hunting? Where did you grow up? First of all, I grew up in Minnesota in, uh, North central Minnesota, uh, the, the son of a rabid hunter. Okay. And, and my, my dad still hunts a lot. He's retired now. So he hunts even more than ever. Uh, so that was always part of my upbringing. I have three brothers. We all hunted growing up. Um, and so, you know, this moving to Montana was kind of a, a perfect fit for both hunting and just being outdoors more. And so, so back to the film real quick, your, your buddy who ran the race, uh, can you just talk a little bit about him and his background First, like how old he is, how long he'd been, been doing ultras and that kind of thing. Cause for people who aren't listening to this, um, you said it was the, you know, the hard rock is one of the hardest and it's hard to understate how, or hard to overstate how hard it is. I mean, hundred miles, a lot of it over 13,000 feet, you go over 14 or 34,000 feet of vertical I think it's, I think it's, I've never done it, but I think it's the hardest thing I could ever imagine to do. So can you just talk a little bit about your buddy and, and kind of how he came about to even considering doing the hard rock? Yeah. Part of the reason I, I selected him as the character is because he has such a great backstory. He didn't, he wasn't a runner either. He was a wrestler and a um, rugby player in college and, uh, you know, a weightlifter. He was a relatively guy. And then when he graduated college, I think he uh, kept up with the the less healthy habits of college and and dropped off on the on the uh, athletic endeavors and and just started you know being less active and got heavier and heavier and um, wasn't going to the gym anymore like he used to. So anyway, the story is that he he went out to do a one mile run. He he had had his first child. He was feeling really out of shape. So he thought I'm going to go do a one mile run and he couldn't finish that one mile run. And I think it shocked him to some degree. And he decided uh, that he was going to run a few steps further every day until he could finish that one mile run. So he was like 220 pounds at the time. He was a great big guy. Um, And now, I mean, I think he's, he, you know, 
during training season and race season, he's probably more like 175, 180. So it was a pretty significant um, life change for him when he started running. But he started, so he started with a mile and, and stuck with it and ran a few steps further until he could do that mile. And then he started doing a couple 5Ks, 10Ks, and, um, you know, got into trail running and just sort of followed that same natural progression as what you and I did. Uh, eventually did I think his first hundred mile was the Bighorn um, trail run um, and then started putting his name into the lottery because hard rock is strangely enough you have to work to get into it um, so there's a lottery for it but you know he got in and the the race that I filmed was actually his third hard rock finish and then I went back and paced him this year for his fourth hard rock finish so that was I didn't I didn't film it obviously I was just there to support him but so it was pretty neat um a neat neat progression for him he went from someone who was in really pretty poor shape to um to to running some of the hardest races out there yeah that's super impressive and i think that's one of the cool things about ultra running is that you know i think that's kind of a common story that that a lot of the people who really get into it myself included had no no background in running at all. And in, like you said, I always it was punishment. I mean, I, I, it was the worst thing that could happen in team sports. And um, I just love it. So there are a lot of people who like the outdoors. There are a lot of people who like to exercise. There are a lot of people who like to push themselves. But it's a very unique person who wants to go out and completely destroy themselves for a day or longer. It's kind of a hard question, but why do you do that? Why do why do you, what what draws you to to that sport or to, to that challenge? It is a yeah, that is a hard question. Um, I, for me, it's that our lives are so easy. At least we here in the United States, I, I feel like everything is just so easy for us. From the time we wake up in the morning and get into our temperature controlled cars and go into the office and sit down and are comfortable, you know, it's just, everything is, there's no struggle if you're lucky enough to live where we do. Um, and I just, I think it harkens back to our, you know, caveman days or something that we need that we need to push ourselves. We need that struggle. And for me, I notice that my life is much more fulfilled if occasionally I put myself through some sort of torture and, you know, come out the other side, a somewhat changed person. And, and frankly, a cheeseburger tastes a hell of a lot better after you've run 50 <laughs> miles. So, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. I think that's a great explanation. That's in the part about it being kind of part of what we're supposed to do is part of pushing ourselves. I had a, rancher named Jim Howell on the podcast. I've had him on here twice and he's also an ultra runner. He's one of the few ranchers that I can talk to, talk to about ultra running without being embarrassed. <laughs> but he's, uh, that's what he says, our genetic heritage to be able to go out there and do that. And, um, I'm with you on that. I think it's, I think it's awesome. And that, that film was just so well done and I'm glad it's public now. Cause I'll, I'll put links to it obviously on the webpage so people can watch it. But I think whether you're into hunting, ultra running, or none of the above, it's um, it's a good way to spend 12, 13 minutes because I think it really hits on the heart of both of those things. Um, so that was that was great work. Um, so uh, let's back up a little bit. I want to hear more about you specifically, then we can dig into your your experience as a photojournalist and creative person. So you grew up in Minnesota, um, hunting, spending a lot of time outdoors. Were you also a creative kid? Um, I don't think I was overly creative. I, I was really into painting when I was a kid. I, I wanted to be a wildlife artist. Hmm. Um, and I took a few classes and really liked that, but I don't remember that being like a big part of my life. I, there was a phase probably where I was into that. Um, you know, I, I, I was, no, I would say I was a pretty average kid in terms of creativity. So when did the photography enter into the picture? Uh, it was, it was in college. Um, and where was that? You know, well, I started out at Bemidji State University in northern Minnesota. Um, I transferred to St. Cloud State University. That's where I got my undergraduate. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I liked the idea of telling stories probably 
more realistically, I thought there are newspapers in every town and every city in the world. And I liked the idea of traveling and I liked the idea of being able to get a job wherever I went. And I thought that's a, that's a job that will allow me to see a lot of cool things and do a lot of cool things anywhere I go. Um, and so I, I actually started out as a writer and while I was, I was doing like mostly sports writing and while in college and then started taking a few photos to accompany the stories that I was doing and eventually realized that telling stories through photography was much more fulfilling and I just enjoyed that medium a lot more. So I, after college, had a couple internships where I was still doing both writing and photography, um, kind of honing both of those storytelling crafts. Um, but then my f first job was actually as a staff photographer for a small newspaper in Livingston, Montana called the Livingston Enterprise, which is a five day a week uh, daily that still exists. And so how, how long were you there in Livingston at that newspaper? So, so I graduated college in 99, moved to Montana the next day or the day of graduation. I think I had my truck packed and ready to go because I knew this is where I wanted to live. Um, and then about nine months after getting to Montana, I got the job at the Livingston newspaper in 2000 and worked here until about 2004 and then got the got a job at the Bozeman Daily Chronicle and worked there for another eight years um, before I left the newspaper industry. So one thing that just jumped in my head when you were talking, you, you had your truck packed to move out. <laughs> what was it about Montana that attracted your attention that made you head straight here? I had been, I had a brother uh, who, who moved to Bozeman when he graduated high school and had a construction company. So I had been coming out to Bozeman just about every summer uh, in high school and college, working for him and living the Montana lifestyle of, you know, fly fishing and playing on the river and hiking in the mountains and doing all those kinds of things. So I knew, uh, I knew from a pretty like middle school age that I was going to end up in my, or at least I had hoped I'd end up in Montana. That was the goal, just the lifestyle. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I the funny thing is I knew the same same thing, but I didn't have the guts to head out straight out of college. So <laughs> when we're almost <laughs> yeah. exact, I think you're a year a year older than me, but um, pretty much the same age. So yeah. when you started at this photography job, you know, thinking about you know the the pressure of traditional journalism and having to fill the spaces in the newspaper, combined with the fact that it was a different world back then. I mean, it's hard to believe, but there was really not a legit internet back then. Right. I don't even know. You may not have even been using digital cameras at that point um, or right. You're right on the edge. So that looking back to that, what, what lessons did you learn from kind of the high pressure world of professional journalism um, that you've been able to apply to your creative life? Um, you're right. I was right on the edge. So I was, I was still processing film in the dark room in college and then we started scanning negatives, scanning color negatives, which was a big deal because we had color on the front page of the college newspaper for the first time. It was a, it was a big deal. And then I was still scanning negatives at the at the Livingston Enterprise when I started. Uh, we got a digital camera like my second or third year there, so I was I was making that transition. Um, lessons I learned. I mean, there was there was an element of the daily newspaper world that I still miss to some degree that I just loved of that, um, of just having to come up with something that, that had your name on it every day. And, uh, you know, it, 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 you were going to be as good or as bad <laughs> as the job. It was not depending on anybody else. Um, and I kind of missed that part of it. There's very few other jobs where the, the work that you do that day shows up in a on the front page of a newspaper for everybody to judge. You know, can you imagine working at an office and being like, "Okay, here's what I, I got. I got seven, you know, TCP reports done, and and two trips to the coffee shop, and uh, you know, shredded three documents or whatever." 
and then you put that on the front page of the newspaper for everybody to judge whether you did a good job that day or not. Oh yeah, um, yeah. I can't. I mean, just the, just the the pressure of it, you know, every day and knowing that you have to produce every day. That's um, it's pretty cool. But one thing that I've I've heard from talking with people who are in journalism, like you, and have people that had deadlines, is that they generally don't think that writer's block or they don't have an issue with writer's block because or creative block or whatever you want to call it because they spent so many years not having that as an option. Is that do you agree with that or is that what you've experienced or or have you experienced something different? The turnaround time is so fast that you learned the skills that I took away was just the quick editing. I could, you know, burn through I come back from a football game with 600 photos and in a matter of minutes have the three best Mm -hmm. or, or before I even get to the computer, know generally which ones are going to work the best or which ones look the best. But yeah, I mean the deadline thing now it's like, I feel like I procrastinate until the last minute because I work so good on deadline that having three days to work on something doesn't help because I'm going to do it in the last six hours anyway. <laughs> that <laughs> sounds familiar to me. <laughs> I think part of that is just a product of having worked on deadlines for so long that I work better that way. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that makes perfect sense. So you obviously have transitioned out of traditional journalism into freelance. And I saw this film, a documentary a while back, and it was about the New York Times and how the the changing media landscape has just kind of turned that whole business upside down. And um, it seemed like there were a lot – from my memory of it, there were a lot of people who worked there who just still seem to be fighting the idea that things are changing and still just kind of sticking to their old ways of doing things and refusing to accept like, all right, look, we got to come up with something new here. But it seems like you have – I mean, at least from the outside perspective, you've you've pretty seamlessly transitioned into the freelance world and the world of new media. And so, first of all, why do you think you were able to do that versus being stuck in your ways? And then can you just talk a little bit about that transition in general and how it's been? Well, I think it's like anything else. If you actually saw how the sausage was made, was, was made <laughs> it, it's not as clean and, and pretty as – it looks from the outside. I think that's the, that's, that's the reality in most cases. Um, cause yeah, I mean, when I left the newspaper, I, I, there were a lot of fits and starts and, and trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. Cause I didn't have it figured out. I just knew that the reason I got into journalism was not there anymore. And I needed to f- creatively find a different route. Um, and, and that obviously, I mean, not obviously, but, that did eventually work out. It's been about six years now since I left the paper and and there's been a lot in between there. All good as it turns out looking back. But you know, when you're in the moment, you're like, what in the hell am I doing? What was I thinking? Um, Because now both my wife, my wife and I are both, um, you know, self-employed running our own businesses, which is a pretty big gamble at the time she had been all along. And then when I left the newspaper, it was like, okay, now we both are. Now we, now we both have to figure it all out. Um, how old are your boys? Uh, they are nine and 10. So they were running around, you know, just at toddler age, which is the age of my kids. Now, when you made that transition, that's no joke. No. And that was a big, you know, obviously you, you wonder if you're going to be able to put food on the table and pay the, pay the mortgage. Um, and those are, very real stresses. It's hard for people to fully appreciate that and the pressure that you must have felt doing. I mean, it would be that case in any job, but I think it would be, it's even tougher when it's a creative type job. Type job. Do you, I mean, do you agree with that? I do uh, <laughs> because I went through it. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't think there was, there's always been a lot of competition and photography in the West and in especially it feels like around Bozeman you know there's always been a lot of people doing it so striking out on my own I I certainly wasn't confident that I had some special niche or some special skill that made me stand above the rest other than I was really willing to work really hard and you know I was um that was something that I'm was never afraid to do 
work hard and, and figure out a way to make ends meet. And I also had been doing photography in this area for a decade by that time or 12 years. So I had a fair number of contacts and, and hoped that I could leverage that to a, a freelance career as well. And it, and it turned out wonderfully because shortly after I left the newspaper, um, I got a call from an, an international NGO that was needing someone to document their work in Afghanistan and Pakistan and Tajikistan and some of those Central Asian countries. So I pretty quickly went from the newspaper world to, um, you know, being, being mostly full just with that work. So how long were you over there? How long, like total, how many, how many months or weeks or whatever did you spend over in that part of the world? <laughs> I did, sorry, there's sirens going by my office door here. I'm sorry. Um, I did, I did five trips and they were generally four to six weeks long. Holy so pretty, God. yeah, pretty intensive, um, from a family standpoint. I shouldn't say pretty, incredibly intensive from a family standpoint. And again, I've got an incredible wife who um, has been supportive of these endeavors all along. So, but yeah, the boys were pretty young then, which was hard on her, easier on me because they weren't really aware of time frames and how long dad was gone, just that dad was gone. Um, so the older they got, the more, the more difficult those trips became. And, you know, frankly, the more insecure that that part of the country was becoming. What was the craziest thing you saw when you were over there? Like the craziest experience you had? Did you have any really scary things happen to you? Yeah. I mean, there was often scary things happening around us. Um, Probably the scariest was when we got woke up uh, in the middle of the night by our, by the person who was hosting us in his home and said, we need to get you out of here right now because, uh, the Taliban is on the way and the way, (laughs) and the way, the way they, or the way they knew that was that the, the Taliban often burned down the cell phone towers or take down the cell phone towers. In this case, it was burning, um, as they go because it cuts communication to these villages. And obviously it's long, uh, rural, routes to these various villages so when the communications go down um it takes a while to get word out but he had had a driver in the next village over that said that those two villages both lost communication so that they were pretty certain the taliban was moving through that area and whether they knew we were there or not i have no idea but so we had a you know a late night um terrifying drive through this um village and then out into the countryside in a little i don't know toyota corolla or something that was just an old beater to 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 fit in as much as possible so that was probably one of the scariest yeah that's pretty damn scary i can't think of anything that's happened to me that like that that's we also uh, got we also got pinned kind of pinned in between what ended up being like a civil war but we were you know looking out the window watching these people shooting at each other and unable to go anywhere because we were just kind of caught in the wrong place at the wrong time, had nothing to do with us. But, um, that was a eye opener for sure to see, to see people actually shooting real guns at each other. You think, you know, you watch it all the time on TV, but when you're looking out the window at it, it's like, Oh my God, this is, this is real. Yeah. The scare, I think the scariest experience I've ever had was in Central America, seeing somebody shooting a gun at somebody else and I was standing right next to him. I mean, and that, Oh my God. It makes me feel like such a wimp when you compare it to military guys, you know, that's that's their job. Yeah. That's a whole different level. I have the utmost respect. Um, so a lot of your films are about, obviously about the outdoors adventure and public lands is a big component of that. And I, just before I came in here to record this thing, I saw that Backcountry Hunters and Anglers was promoting this the new film a few steps further that we've been talking about. Um, so obviously you're you're striking a chord with public lands advocates. Can you just talk a little bit about public lands and you know is in these films you make are you are you trying to make a statement for public lands or or is that part of the message you want to get out there or is it just a, a byproduct of of the the things that you're the stories that you're telling. Uh, both. I mean, it's a byproduct because that's where we're 
doing these activities. So inherently it's part of it, but absolutely. I'm especially with this film, I'm trying to send a message that, you know, for a long time, the hunters were the ones that kind of carried the torch on the whole conservation um, effort. And um, to a large degree, these other recreational groups have had a, have gotten a pass, you know, trail runners or kayakers. And I'm not trying to single out any, any specific user group. I, I consider myself part of most of them, but honestly, the hunters are the ones that, that were carrying the torch just with their license sales and, you know, equipment sales and Pittman Robertson act and those kinds of things. Um, and I think, I think it's time in this, especially in this era that we, we all need to come together. We all need to carry, carry the weight of that because there's so many more threats to these places that we all love and we all need and we all thrive in. Um, if you're any sort, if you're an outdoor recreationist of any sort, you're probably using public lands and those don't just appear and those don't just remain public on their own. It takes a real effort. Um, and obviously, you know, your listeners probably get that to some degree, but, um, I think it's a message that, that I'm trying to continually help put out there. Yeah. I think it's more important than ever. And to be honest, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously a big public lands user and, but it never really crossed my mind, the idea of that they could, that these things could be taken away until all the, you know, the last two years and seeing some of the maneuvering and, and that there are in fact individuals, you know, obviously big, big interest, you know, corporate interest or, or private interest. that are controlling individuals who really do want to take it away. And um, whether that means move it to the state or just move it into corporate hands, whatever. Um, and so it's it's extremely important. And, uh, the one good thing I think about it all is that it's it's brought together groups like ultra runners and hunters. You know, people that used to be a little bit at, at odds, um, and and but who love the who love the the public lands and, and recognize they need to team up because you know when it comes to dollars, we, we don't have much. Uh, it, much competition against a oil and gas company. So it takes, right. every, it takes everything. Right. I don't know if you saw outside magazine, just uh, had a story about that, about, you know, how hunters should be. I think hunters have, have kind of been, you know, the ugly stepchild mm-hmm. in the rec and outdoor recreation world for a long time, because it's, a con- you know, it's a consumptive um, activity and, and most of the mainstream are non-consumptive and, and there's a lot of feelings around that. Um, but it's become so much more mainstream just in the last few years, um, just hunting in general. I mean, you know, the outside magazine is saying, Hey, these are, these need to be our friends. We need to come together. Um, you know, stop looking down at the hunters. They're, they're an important part of this conversation. I think that speaks loudly of, of where we're at. And I, and it's great. I mean, I, I think the more we can come together on these things and create a united front, the more successful we're going to be. I agree. And there's a lot more in common than there is different, um, with all these groups. And so yeah. it's, I mean, it, now's the time as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, my, my daily work is in privately in conservation, but you know, there's even, big opportunities there between private and public land partnerships to, to protect this stuff. Cause if it's gone, it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. so back to just your, your, your work as a creative photography, filmmaking, are there any, um, have you had any mentors along the way or heroes that you may not have known, but you read about, watched their films, admired their photography, people that you admire their work and you've kind of modeled some of your, yourself after them? Um, yeah, there's been a lot of them. I mean, that's been from the time I started at the first newspaper job, that's been how one of my tools is to study the best in whatever I happen to be working on. So at that time it was, who's the best photojournalist? Who's, who's doing the best newspaper photojournalism? And I would study them. Um, I'm reading, uh, um, Long Nights of the Shadow Catcher, is that right? Oh, is that good? I haven't read it, but I've heard everybody who's read it says it's just unbelievable. 
it's really good and it's really interesting to see him to see his struggle with uh you know he had this amazing idea of of documenting the native americans at the at that critical time when they were starting to be forced onto reservations and um you know he wanted to capture the culture and the and the religion and the belief system before it was totally gone so he had this really great idea that now you you would get funded in a heartbeat mm-hmm. he wanted to create these extensive volumes on this subject but he struggled so much with funding and then he he transitioned to film and he struggled so much with funding it was like he had these great ideas and yet selling that idea and i think that's so often the case with creative people is um they just want to create the 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 financial the business part of it is where we struggle the most so i've definitely that's definitely resonated with me like those struggles that he's had you know getting his ideas to sell and then the transition from from still photography to film that kind of stuff yeah, and so that's that's one question I had because I know there are a lot of people who listen to this podcast who would love to do what you do. Um, you know, they'd love to be a make films or do photography. And so, just from a, a very practical, like nuts and bolts standpoint, and I know it's a lot easier just to to tell it than to actually do it. But like, how do you how do you s- secure sponsors for a film like that? I've just never known how that works. Is that just through relationships that you've built? over the decades you've been doing this? Um, well, I'm still figuring it out. I don't, I don't claim to have that part figured out. That's probably where I struggle the most is identifying the right people and then, you know, selling the product. Um, but for this last one, a few steps further, it was a little easier because it was a market that ha- that's growing, that kind of crossover between endurance sports and hunting there's an entire industry growing up around that which is part of the you know what i noticed when i started thinking about this film is like there are businesses being created specifically around this so those are the ones that i targeted first was like the onyx maps Mm -hmm. uh you know stone glaciers making backpacks for that kind of hunting style um, and then, of course, backcountry hunters and anglers, and that's what they're all about. So, I mean, just identifying the space that your film is trying to be in and then what companies are are in that space. For this newest one I'm working on now, I was fortunate enough to just get a grant from Patagonia, and I don't have to stress that stuff so much. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? That was actually going to be my next question. As much as you're you're able to talk about the new project you're working on and give some details on that grant from Patagonia, because that's a pretty prestigious deal. It is. And I'm super excited and and feel really fortunate to have gotten that. It's a, it's a media grant. It was something I, I pitched this story to them and, um, and secured this grant and the film is, um, so here in, in Southwest Montana, there's a proposed gold mine in, um, near, near Yellowstone national park, just North of Yellowstone national park. Two of them actually have been proposed one called Crevice Mountain and one up Emigrant Gulch near Emigrant Peak, which is a pretty prominent peak in the Paradise Valley. Um, and so the film is about this proposed gold mine and how this community of businesses called the Yellowstone Gateway Business Coalition came together to fight this, not as a not as a political fight or as an anti-mining thing, but just saying that, look, we have we have a really good industry here in recreation and in outdoor recreation. Um, and so we feel like the few jobs that, you know, you're touting or the, the reason you're here would could potentially ruin our livelihood and, and ruin our businesses. And we as a coalition, you know, are going to fight this. Um, and there's, there's a couple of specific characters, one in particular, who's kind of an unlikely environmentalist um, as a result of this issue. And so the film is um, tying that recreational aspect um, into the into the topic of this potential gold mine that's being proposed. And so, what is the timing on that? How how long do you think it's going to be before there's a decision made one way or the other? Well, there. I mean, today they just announced uh, this. So let me restart that. Represent uh, Interior Secretary of the Interior. Zinke 
um, came to the Paradise Valley last week and signed a 20-year moratorium saying that the public land in this area cannot be mined. Interesting. Um, now, the private land is obviously still on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a 20-year moratorium. So the business coalition, most of the members ultimately want those public lands off the table in perpetuity. Um, Senator John Tester and Representative Greg Gianforte, from, both from Montana, have both introduced uh, similar bills in the House and Senate um, called the Yellowstone Gateway Protection Act, which um, is making its way through the House and Senate right now um, and will could potentially be voted on by Congress, you know, this fall, winter. Okay. So if that passes, if that Yellowstone Gateway Protection Act passes as an act of Congress, then obviously um, that removes those public lands from being mined in perpetuity. So Tester, that makes sense with him. It, the, what's the other guy's name? G, Gianforte? Yeah, Greg Gianforte. Is he and, a Republican? And, he is, and Representative Steve Daines, or Senator Steve Daines, is also a Republican here in Montana. They have all, um, they've all given their support on this issue. The reason being, according to Zinke, when he had this press conference last week, is that there's, um, you know, bipartisan unilateral support on this issue locally. Mm-hmm. There's, there's libertarians, there's Republicans, there's Democrats, there's every walk of life and political spectrum that are saying this isn't the place for a gold mine. Um, and so, you know, the, the senators and um, representatives have listened to their constituents and, and uh, have somewhat gone against party lines, obviously, um, to back this. Yeah, that's pretty, uh, that makes me feel better about things, especially with the GM Forte, because he's the guy that uh, body slammed a reporter, isn't he? That's right. Yeah, yep. tough guy. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Zinke is a tough guy. I don't agree with him, but he was a Navy SEAL, so I, I mean, that's right. I wouldn't want to get into it with him. But the other guy body slamming some reporter—that's uh, kind of silly. Well, that's yeah, so, um, so I'm tiptoeing through interviews right now. Yeah, yeah. What well, <laughs> is it? Um, so, so how's it going? I mean, is it has it been a a hard process, fun process? I mean, how does it compare to what you thought it would be? Um, both hard and fun. Uh, you know, it's, it's certainly, there's more depth and, and more to this story, obviously, than a few steps further, um, from a, you know, political and, and legal standpoint. Um, but it's fun because not, you know, I'm looking at the issue and at the law and, those sorts of things, but I'm also weaving in some recreational aspects of backcountry skiing and hunting and fishing and those kinds of things. So it's still, uh, you know, it's still right up my alley. It's just, there's a lot more, um, technical details involved. So one more question about the filmmaking process that I'm just curious about if, so I'm sure you, you're always having ideas. I mean, I would, I would guess a day doesn't go by that you don't have an idea for a project, but how do you, do you have a system for sorting through all these potential projects and when you nail down the one you actually want to do, or is it just some, do you just wait for one to kind of stick in your head longer than others? Or how do you sort through all the ideas you have to actually pull the trigger on pursuing funding and getting one of these films made? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I, uh, I don't think I was very good at saying no at first. I'm starting to get busy enough now where I have to be a little bit pickier, which is, which is an incredibly, um, fortunate place to be. You don't take that. I don't take for granted. Um, you know, it's a combination of my passions and funding really. I, if I'm going to spend the amount of time on these kind of projects that they require, then I want it to be something that I'm super interested and passionate about. And then also I don't want to have to bang my head against the wall from a funding perspective for two years. Cause I've, I've sort of done that. Um, so it's kind of a combination of those two passion and, and whether I can get it, whether I think I can get it funded. Yeah. I think that's good for people to hear. And that's one of the 
things that comes up time and again with creative type folks that I interview is trying to find that balance between, you know, staying true to your vision and following your vision, but then just the basic dollars and cents reality of it. And I think a lot of people lose sight of that, especially in the social media world where everything just seems like it's so easy. You know, people present things as being easy, but if you're doing important stuff and hard stuff, there is a, there's always a financial reality to it. I mean, do you, do you agree with that? There is. And I should say this, there's a financial reality and, and, and the further along you get in this, the more you're like, it's gotta be worth my while. But there's a caveat in that. Um, I think there's a really important, I think the passion project or the, or the, you know, the, the piece that you do just because you really want to do it, there's, there's a place for that. Um, the, the most recent film that I just finished, which is called the ride, which is a, a real short, um, documentary about ski joring, the equestrian ski sport, um, had virtually no funding. In fact, the, the one sponsor I got gave me a small amount of money and 10 cases of beer because it's a, <laughs> <laughs> because it's a beer company. Um, and it's hard, you know, to, to talk about putting food on the table for the kids, that doesn't go very far. <laughs> um, but it was a it was a story that I was very passionate about. It was a story I really wanted to tell that ha- that, that had a lot of a lot going for it. And I was working on the sport and the story to some degree for some other publications, for some magazines and different media. Um, so I was getting paid to some degree. It just the the amount of time I put in making this film did not equate to the amount of money or beer that I made. <laughs> that I made up. But, but it did get accepted into the um, Banff Mountain Film Festival this year. So that, you know, that's well worth it in and of itself. Hell yeah. I don't think it gets much better than that. That's, um, yeah, and I, and I agree with what you're saying about the, the money part. I mean, if you want to make money, go be an investment banker. It's very, right. very simple. Go work in private equity, venture capital, whatever the hell you want to do. But, um, I mean, because there is a creative aspect of this stuff and a part of, you know, kind of donating your time in service of the, the vision. And so that's awesome. Is there a, is there a way we can see that, that film, The Ride, or is, has it been publicly released yet? Or if not, when will it be? It hasn't. I'm still figuring out distribution on that. It's, it's I literally just found out it was going to – it was accepted into Banff and a couple other film festivals and – have entered it into a few others here in the U S. Um, and so it kind of depends the distribution is kind of, you know, based around that and sponsors and that sort of thing. So all that to say, it's not public yet. It probably will be by late winter. Cool. Well, I'll blast it out whenever it is. Um, and so one more question and then we can get on to the quick questions. And this one is completely selfish on my part, but, you're obviously a great photographer. You've been doing it forever. If you could give me one piece of advice so that I can take better landscape shots. And cause that's what I do. You know, I used to do it selling ranches, trying to make these ranches look like they're worth $10 million. <laughs> and then yeah. now I'm doing it, you know, in the service of, of land conservation. Um, if you had to just give one piece of simple advice that maybe something you see people do that's wrong that you're like, oh man, if you just fix that, your picture would be so much better. You, do you have anything for me? Oh man, is it buy a ten thousand dollar camera? Is that the best advice? No, I mean, <laughs> no. Good. I think no, because you, you can get just as good a photo on your iPhone given the right light and circumstances, um, or almost as maybe not quite as good. But uh, I mean, I you know, I think it all comes down to light and, and using light to your advantage, uh, depending on what you're going for. I, that's a hard one. I don't know. Uh, landscape. What about, what about having a human in, in the landscape photo? Yeah. One of my, uh, one of my newspaper editors who is a salty old, you know, classic salty old cigarette smoking, uh, editor, newspaper editor used to say, it's got to have a heartbeat. It's got to have a heartbeat. So I think that's you know, great advice. Yeah. And that, 
you know, from a newspaper's perspective is, is more obvious than, than traditional landscape. But even what I translated that into is often just finding a wildlife subject to, to introduce into that landscape photo so that it did have a heartbeat. It didn't have to be a person, you know, in true newspaper fashion, it could be a deer or an elk or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly a good piece of advice. Although I'm sure the disciplined landscape photographers would argue otherwise. Well, I've noticed in some of your photos, like recently, I, um, there was one, it was this beautiful sunset with a ridge line and, and there was, um, just a, a small, almost like a shadow of a, of a guy on the ridge line. And I, I think it was from, from this recent film. And mm. I thought that that made that, that photo so much more interesting than if it was just the same thing, but take out the little guy. Um, and I've noticed Pete McBride does that a lot too. So, yeah. And I think that's just that journalism background of, you, you know, there's not a lot of room for, for just pretty pick, pretty landscapes and newspaper or, or even mag, you know, certain types of magazines. I think there's always that strive to get a subject or a heartbeat in there. All right. I will take that to heart <laughs> and you'll be responsible for the, the, the preservation of thousands of acres. Um, right. Perfect. So we can move on to the quick questions real quick if you got time for that. Um, you bet. So what are your favorite books related to the American West? Uh, I, I love all things Jim Harrison. I had the great good fortune to photograph him several times did throughout really? his career. Yeah, I did. Oh, wow. he had a place He had a place uh, in Paradise Valley, actually, just south of Livingston. So I photographed him for a number of different magazines, and he was such a – wonderful storyteller and writer and had just such a unique perspective on humanity, I think. That's any specific books that come to mind that if you had to pick one of his? Um, The Road Home is a great one. Uh, I mean, of course, um, Legends of the Fall is probably his most well-known, but. um, He was a salty old dude, huh? Yeah, very. Um, yeah. Do you have any favorite books of all time? It doesn't particularly have to be about the West. Um, I mean, it is about the West. Like one of my absolute favorites is is Ivan Doig's House of Sky, and it's about the West, and it's about like he's he's from real close to where I live here in Southwest Montana, South Central Montana. That one comes up a lot. I think you're does it? Yeah, yeah. yeah the um, Oh, you, you know, you know her, Sarah Calhoun, Red Ants Pants. Yeah, yeah. She she said that that book is the whole reason she came out here. It changed like that's, that's right. the whole reason for everything with her, which is cool. That's you, right. you photographed the festival, right? That's right. Every yeah, I I I photograph the uh, Red Ants Pants Music Festival every year, which is one of the highlights of the summer because I get to wander around with the camera and and listen to great music. Yeah, she's awesome. She's a she's really an amazing person. Um, so this would be interesting for you. What are your favorite? Do you have a favorite documentary? Um, I have a whole bunch of favorites. Uh, a great one I just watched recently it was called Arctic Red about the Pebble Mine up in Alaska. I'm doing some, you know, background kind of documentary watching research yep. um, for this one that I'm working on. And that was a Ben Knight film. He's a Telluride filmmaker and you know, pretty much anything that he does is good. Um, he just did one for Yeti that just came out in the last week. looks like it's about baseball. I haven't watched it yet, but anyway, he's a really good filmmaker. That was a cool film about, about the pebble mine. Um, yeah. Anything from him, anything from camp Four collective guys is good. Yeah. They're good. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Those are all good. Um, so you do, you hunt, you run for way too long. You, you know, hang out with your fam. You know, you take your boys out. Are there any activities you do that would be surprising to people who listen? AKA, do you know how to knit or anything like that? I don't know how to knit. Um, I read, <laughs> I read Harry Potter to my boys every night. I don't know if that's surprising or not, but it's something I really enjoy doing. Those books are really good. <laughs> they, they are good, and I had never read them before, but they were kind of at the at the right age, I thought this is a good age to, to, to still have this interaction with the boys, you know, um, but also have this kind of wild adventure through book, which I love. 
Yeah, those are good books. Um, I also I also skate ski. I also uh, like Nordic skate ski in the winter. That's my that's my uh, um, my exercise in the winter time. I've never done that, but I want to do it. It looks awesome. It is. It's like a it's a graceful combination of like biking and running where you go fast but you're but it's not so jarring to your body so it's a really good uh break for the running body i think is to do that for a few months in the winter and i love i love it it's just another way to get outside and in the mountains and move yeah definitely um you may have already answered this one with the afghanistan story um but what is the most powerful experience you've ever had anywhere um i say in the outdoors but really anywhere given your your travels and the different experiences and powerful could be scary like afghanistan or funny or memorable or something you know experience you had with your family just does anything come to mind as most powerful one of the probably one of the most exciting moments in the outdoors was i um shot an a bull elk at about six feet with my wife right next to me. Holy cow. Um, <laughs> it came, it came in like closer than we had anticipated. And she was, she was with me that day, which was really cool. And so we were both crouched down on the ground with this giant beast, literally breathing down on us, um, from feet away. And when it turned, I made the shot and was able to to get the elk and her eyes were so big, so huge. She was like, I was sure it was going to hear me breathing. Um, so that was a cool experience to share with her. That's pretty cool. Just being that close to an animal that big. would be It's cool. amazing. But yeah. It's they're amazing. Amazing animals. Um, where is your favorite location in the West? If you, if you could only pick one. Uh, it's a certain lake up in the crazy mountains, which is kind of in my backyard uh, in Southwest Montana. And on those six-week trips in Central Asia, when I couldn't be out running freely through the hills, that was where my mind went to. Whenever I was feeling cooped up or needed a mental break, it would be to that lake and the crazies. And, and it was the first place I went when I got back. I would run the the 12 miles up to that lake and soak it all in and be really thankful for the place that I get to live. The crazy mountains, I've never been up in them, but I used to I used to do a lot of work in Big Timber, Montana. So I was always over there looking at at them and they they're just spectacular from from the outside. I'll come up there and visit you one day and then we'll you can take me up to that lake. You should. It's a pretty neat range. Um, you know, it's an island range, so it's it's kind of prairie around it, but it, it's a it's a cool spot and there's a lot of there's a lot going on there from the public land perspective right now too, which makes it um, all the more interesting. So this is a hard one, but what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Uh, well, my dad used to say nothing good ever happens after midnight. <laughs> I agree with that, unless you're running a hundred miles. <laughs> right, but you know my uh, my the very first editor, that salty old newspaper editor that I had. Stephen used to say, show me something new or show me something old in a new way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from a photography perspective, that's, that's pretty, that's, I've carried that through my career. Um, because that, I think that's what makes good photography, whether it's the landscape photography you were talking about or, or photojournalism or whatever genre it is. Um, you know, it's, especially in this day and age, it's all been done or feels like it has when you look at Instagram. Yep. But, 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 you know, thinking about doing something new and, and different, or if, if it is, if it has been done before, how can you do it in a totally different way that hasn't been done a hundred times? Yeah. Simple, but not easy. Right. 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 Um, and so next to last question, if you could make a request of the people who listen to this podcast, and it's just people who love the American West, whether through their jobs and ranching or conservation or through athletics or through creative endeavors like you, um, if you could offer some words of wisdom, make an ask, what would you say? Um, I probably would say the same thing that I always told my students when I was teaching at the um, University of Montana, which is ultimately like my takeaway I, I always wanted them to leave my classes with was don't be a dick um <laughs> in other words you know 
be kind to, to people around you because we're all we're all not only in this together, but we're all going through our own struggles, and you don't always know what what the person next to you is dealing with. So I think it, I think it's worth repeating on a daily basis that um, don't be a dick. Try and help your fellow neighbor out. I think that's great advice, especially in our current political in, environment. Um, so how can people connect with you, learn more about you, follow you on social media? Um, I have the great curse of having a very common name, but it's <laughs> uh, everything's pretty much at Eric Peterson Photo. It's Eric with a K. Peterson is S-E-N, ericpetersonphoto.com and Instagram and all that good stuff. Sweet. I'll have links to everything as well as the, the films that are available. So I really appreciate you taking, taking the time to chat. Well, I appreciate what you're doing. This is a cool uh, platform, and, and uh, I'm happy to be part of it. Thanks, Ed. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.